This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Friday and we made it and you made it. And I think you made it because you were watching last night when I said it was Friday Eve. Uh, I hope that was the slingshot that got you through to today and then through to tonight. I'm so glad that you're with me. How's your week been? Um, because mine's been a bit rough. I uh, broke my foot on Sunday, and I've still done every show since, but I, I, I'm going to issue a, you a challenge. I, I told my whole staff to try this today. S- just stand on one foot for 10 minutes and do all your business, like go get a glass of water, sit down at your desk, get back up, go to the bathroom. Try all those things on one foot, and then you will know how my week was, and then we will really be simpatico, you and me. Um, it's just, it's been a thing. I have total, total respect for anybody who's dealing with a disability at this point because suddenly I am. Okay, I have breaking news tonight. I do not normally get this kind of news on a Friday night at 10 o'clock Eastern, but it is breaking. It is a serial killer on the loose in L.A. L.A. of all places. And this is like a night stalker. This is a guy who is hunting a specific kind of victim. He has struck uh, three times now, uh, from Sunday through till Wednesday, killing three different men, all the same way, all the same M.O. Look at the distance. Look at the distance this guy's covered. But he's got the same kind of victim in each of those places. And the police are really zeroing in on it. We have a photo of the guy, got a photo of the car, and... Here's the weird thing. Like, they're really, really worried in Los Angeles. They're telling people to, like, don't be alone tonight. That's serious. Okay, I'm going to get into all the details in just a moment, and I'm going to give you, like, all the, 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 the hints and what they have and what they don't have on this guy in just a moment. But then I also have this other breaking story. You may have heard this. You might have missed it because Thanksgiving week, you know, we all kind of clue out a little bit, but... Derek Chauvin, the guy who's responsible for George Floyd's murder, uh, he went away for multiple life sentences, right? Fed and state. And in the federal facility where he's been serving, you know, he's at one of those PCs, not politically correct, uh, protected custody, right? Because he's a target. Some people call them dead man walking. How a guy who's protective custody ends up getting stabbed while, you know, in the facility is a whole question for, for on its own, but I have more details tonight on what happened because they were being really quiet about it. And now we're learning it wasn't just a stab. This guy was almost murdered. I mean, he was within an inch of his life. He was stabbed 22 times. And the guy who did it planned it. It happened in the law library. How was he alone? And how was another inmate with a shank able to get close to him in the law library. The other inmate has a story to tell and was telling it loud, uh, had a date picked specifically. I'm going to give you all that. And then he made like the definitive quote. 
to the guards and the cops before he landed himself an attempted murder charge. Because if Chauvin died, it'd be murder. You're going to hear all of that in just a moment. And then there's this. Have you been to Detroit lately? It's actually a lovely place. (laughs) There are some places not so, but many places in Detroit are lovely. Right now, it's got a very pretty blanket of snow on it. That is critical. Because when the snow fell like two inches on Monday, it sort of made the police there say, "Uh uh-oh. Because back in August, they promised that there would be a resolution to a mysterious murder case involving a well-loved, very wealthy neurosurgeon found stuffed in the attic of his mansion. They promised they'd have it solved before the first snow fell. It's December 1st today, and like I said, there's a lot of snow on the ground in Detroit. So we have an update. Not only that, his best friend in her first national exclusive is going to join me on this case with a whole bunch of things we did not know about this case and conversations she has just had with the police because they had a big meeting on it. She was there. She spoke. You're going to hear all of that. That's coming up in just a moment. Let's start, though, with the breaking news tonight, though, in Los Angeles. And the warning from the LAPD that seems to say it all, try not to be alone tonight, quote unquote, try not to be alone tonight in that city. Oh, just a couple million people, many of them alone. But that chilling warning was issued citywide just some time ago, actually not that long ago. We, we were going to like leave the show with something completely different. And then this sort of fell in our laps. The police announced they have a serial killer on their hands a serial killer on the loose on the streets of Los Angeles. That is America's second largest city. And tonight, police are out there. They're fanning out to warn as many people as they can before this heartless execution-style killer strikes again. Three men, just since Sunday, targeted, shot execution-style as they slept. Police say the murderer has been hunting them down because they are homeless and living on the street. And whoever is doing this is doing his hunting at night. And when I say night, I mean the wee hours, the middle of the night when nobody is around and when that city is at its quietest. Very strategic. The first victim was a 37-year-old man. He was killed at about 3 a.m. on Sunday. Number two, second victim. 62-year-old man shot at 4.55 a.m. on Monday. And number three, the third victim, 52 years old, another man killed around 2.30 a.m. on Wednesday. All three of these men were sleeping at the time they were shot dead. Defenseless. Easy, easy, easy prey. According to the police, the killer approached each of them on foot, likely very quietly, because they were sleeping. Each of them was then shot dead, and in each case, the killer then fled in a car. Today, L.A.'s mayor, Karen Bass, along with the district attorney, George Gascon, and members of the LAPD held a joint press conference to put out the alert about the killings for the very first time. Have a listen. The commonalities amongst these homicides are that each of the victims were in an open area, whether it be a sidewalk or an alley. They were alone. And from other information that we've gathered to this point, we believe 
a single individual approached each one and shot and killed each one as they slept. And to the person responsible, we will find you, we will catch you, and you will be held accountable. But we must recognize that in assaulting one of us is in assaulting all of us. The LAPD has set up a task force working around the clock until they catch this night stalking killer. They don't right now have a whole lot to go on, though. This is really troublesome, but here is what we do know. They say they believe the person captured on surveillance right there is their man. They think this is the killer. They think it is a man. They think he's wearing a hoodie. They also have images of the suspect's car. There it is. Weirdly, though, they haven't released any other details about the car, the make, the model, just that photo. Looks like it's speeding through. Snapshot of a camera. There are the locations. They released this map showing where all three of these victims were found dead on the city streets. And they put up a tip line, too. 213-486-6890. So just take a quick shot of your screen. Take a a screenshot. You can also uh, go to lacrimestoppers.org if you know anything about this. I want to bring in our expert panel. John Finolio is a reporter for News Nation's affiliate, KTLA. Phil Waters is a retired homicide detective with the Houston Police Department. He has investigated more than 400 homicides. He knows his job. And then Dr. Gary Brucato is a clinical uh, psychologist and the author of the book, The New Evil, Understanding the Emergence of Modern Violent Crime. And Mark Garagos is a criminal defense attorney and co-host of the Reasonable Doubt podcast with Adam Carolla, also an L.A. resident. He knows those streets. He knows those people. Uh, John Finolio, I want to start with you live on the ground, if I can. Do police have any more leads since we last got that update? Ashley, good evening to you. I can tell you that the latest murder that occurred actually happened on Wednesday right here on West Avenue 18 in L.A.'s Lincoln Heights neighborhood. As to your question, no. Police tonight saying they do not have a lot to go on beyond that blurry, shadowy image of a suspect, a guy in a hoodie wearing casual clothing, driving away in what looks like a sports car. What they do say is that all of these victims were targeted, as you mentioned at the top of the show, three men over the course of four days, sleeping alone at night on city streets and alleyways. What's more, all of these murders happened near major interstates here in Los Angeles. Ashley. John, what about um, the community? I mean, L.A. is a busy place. Not everybody's watching the local news, and this just sort of happens. So how much of a concern uh, is out there? How many people actually don't even know about this threat on the streets? Uh, Well, look, the mayor's office is worried. The police are worried. The FBI, now involved, also worried. Uh, They are trying to put this issue on blast and get the word out as quickly as possible. They've also deployed hundreds of volunteers and city workers to go out into the community to warn people not to sleep alone at night and make good use of the city's emergency shelter system. The notion of a possible serial killer at large is something that no community can abide by, and that is what the mayor and the police chief are focusing on tonight, again warning people not to sleep alone. Ashley. John, we hear a lot about homelessness on the rise in San Francisco. Um, Maybe not as much national headlines about the homelessness problem in your city. Is there... I mean, is it is it at crisis level, and is there a lot of anger? I'm just trying to figure out a motive. Maybe this killer has a screw loose about the politics of it all? 
Well, look, it's a good question. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a collective frustration about homelessness here in Los Angeles and in California as a whole. But the notion that a serial killer or anyone would be driven to shoot and kill somebody sleeping an innocent person is just beyond the pale. But that said, California, it's estimated, has 30 percent of the nation's homelessness. Of course, L.A. being the nation's second largest city has many of those folks living right here. Uh, There is a sense of frustration, sometimes hopelessness. Mayor Karen Bass campaigned on getting people off the street. But bottom line, the rate of people getting off the street has not kept up with the pace at which people are losing their homes. So, yeah, there's a real sense of frustration here. But again, a killer on the loose, something that the city cannot abide. Ashley. One thing I just don't get, John, is what the LAP did in that news conference. They gave this picture of the car, and it's just sort of a a blurry speed-through shot, and then this hazy picture of a guy in a hoodie, and that's it. But I would think they got to have more than that. I mean, is the press frustrated with how little uh, they've been handing out to try to catch this guy? Yeah, tell me about it. We've been talking about it in our newsroom. We're wondering why would they put out such little information, such blurry images. But it speaks to the idea that perhaps that's all they've got right now. If they had more and they're putting this issue on blast, certainly they would release better photos and more information. We just don't have all that info right now. And, of course, we're trying to get it. Yeah, and I've popped that information back up on the screen. In the meantime, maybe Phil Waters, if you could jump in here with your homicide detective background. How do you catch a guy like this who just stalks in the middle of the night and goes up to the most helpless of victims and puts a gun to their head? Well, it's definitely a challenge, and uh, good to be back with you, Ashley. I'll tell you something like this. We had something similar to this in Houston at one point, this uh, random killing of homeless people that were targeted in a, in a same thing like this, the, the, one of the main problems you have is, is that you don't know where the suspect is coming from. So if it's near these highway, uh, uh, large highways, he's coming in from a different area into a target-rich environment. He's do, doing what he's doing, and then he's departing. Now, obviously, these pictures, these images are coming off of CCTV footage, so I would think that the detectives are attempting to track that vehicle through CCTV footage. And that may get them closer to where the car is going, where it's coming from, may give them visibility of a license plate and so forth and so on. I am a little struck by the kind of the vagueness of these photos. I'm sure they have others that are maybe better, better quality, but uh, this is what they're releasing at this point in time. So the, the challenge is they're going to have to blank areas with their patrol officers. Uh, these are happening in the middle of the night, like you said. So there's limited traffic yeah. out there. And this car is and, fairly distinct in its It's one appearance. a night, right? I mean, we're Friday, right. but it's been, it's been like one almost every night. And then there's been this sort of break Wednesday. Who knows if there's one right now that we don't know of. The body hasn't been found. Someone might just think it's someone sleeping. That's a good point. I want to bring in Dr. Bricado for that. You know, they've talked about it being a serial killer in L.A., Dr. Bricado, but you wrote the book literally on spree killing. And we have seen this before. Uh, people who've gone after homeless people and killed them one after the other. Is this a spree or is this a serial killer? This is a spree killer because of the lack of cooling off period between the offenses. And um, by definition, this is somebody moving rapidly and randomly all over the place 
um, expressing rage or some other emotion uh, towards a group uh, toward whom there is hostility. Uh, and um, I'll tell you, uh, I was one of the, the two creators and um, of the Columbia Mass Murder Database during my time at Columbia Medical Center. That's the largest study that was ever done of spree and, and mass murderers uh, across uh, 119 years of, of research, 100, 119 years of cases. And I can tell you that the vast majority of spree killers are going to be people that have experienced uh, some emotional event that infuriates them or, or leaves them feeling hopeless or small or pathetic. And then they go out and target individuals to feel that they've leveled the playing field. And so what I think we're going to find out is that there was some sort of impetus event like that. The question is why homeless people? Uh, and what I can tell you from the research is we're likely going to determine that either there is a specific grudge for some of the reasons that you, that you mentioned earlier, perhaps political, perhaps some other thing related to uh, irritation, that there is a rise in homeless people. But it may also be something symbolic, like being angry at people who uh, one feels uh, are, are uh, small, annoying, pathetic, etc., because of identification with them. If a person feels that way, they're going to be irritated towards people, level the, the playing field by yeah. uh, eliminating them. I, I'm uh, yeah. I really hope it's not political in nature, because, you know, there has been so much uh, political rhetoric about homelessness, especially in California. And in fact, Mark Garagos, jump in here, if you would, for me, because part of it, I don't even want to get to the politics of it, but there, there are politics when it comes to allotting resources to fan out and warn these people. Th these people on the sidewalk don't see cable news. They don't hear the radio. They probably don't even have a phone, many of them. What is the... What's the outreach going to look like? Like, how are the LAPD going to get out to the tens of thousands of homeless people out on the street to warn them that this Night Stalker is out there? Well, it's funny you mentioned the term Night Stalker, because when there was the so-called Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez in Los Angeles, that spread like wildfire. It became kind of a phenomenon that gripped L.A. One of the reasons for that is because he was doing, the Richard Ramirez was doing uh, home invasions. It could have there before the grace of God walked you, so to speak. So people were panicked because he was going into houses. Here you've got the homeless or unhoused, whatever term you want to use. This is not a population that has been anything but vilified in the last couple of years. L.A., to your point earlier in the package, Los Angeles has a horrific homeless problem with encampments under virtually every freeway. That's why you see these uh, the, the, the kind of uh, frustration, if you will, by LAPD and the uh, people here, because there's no way that you can target a specific area. One of these killings is down by Mateo. That's traditionally been Skid Row. Two of these others are not traditionally thought of as Skid Row. These are places under uh, underpasses of the freeways. Right there, what you're showing on the screen is the Third Street Tunnel. These are places that, for the most part, these encampments have popped up. There is a great deal of anger in Los Angeles County specifically, and this is in the city of L.A., but a great deal of anger driving the, the political discourse in this county. Now, obviously, you hope it's not political, but it sure appears that one of the reasons this has flown under the radar so far is that this is not something people just think, I don't have to worry about it. Even 
going back to when we had the Hillside Strangler in L.A., at least at the Hillside Strangler, one of the reasons that the people became somewhat morbidly fascinated with that is that it was women and there was a prurient interest uh, of a nature. Here you have this unique situation of homeless males who are outside alone and not in the traditional encampment getting murdered. And in, I agree with your guest, this is an unusual situation where it's in a, in a very condensed period of time. And that is uh, a frightening thing for police because there's no way in a sprawling city like Los Angeles that they can cover this kind of territory with the resources they have. I mean, it's uh, it's incredible. It harkens back to the to the late '70s with the Skid Row stabber, who almost I think took a dozen or so people um, in a similar fashion. I, I have to leave it there. We're going to keep watching this for any further developments, though, as they come in tonight. It's a developing story. It is breaking news. Uh, Mark Aragos, thank you. Phil Waters and Dr. Gary Bracado, thank you as well. And uh, my great thanks to John Finolio doing the live reporting for us from uh, the streets of Los Angeles tonight. And like I said, we'll continue to follow. Also coming up for more than seven months. A monster has been on the loose in Detroit. The person or persons who put two bullets into the head of a beloved neurosurgeon and then stuffed his body in the attic of his own historic mansion, they're out there. Over the summer, police promised the victim's family there'd be an arrest, quote, before snow hits the ground. It snowed two inches in Detroit on Monday and still no arrests. Now cops are wishing they could take that promise back. And the victim's best friend says it's time to call in the FBI. She joins me exclusively next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In the blazing heat of August, winter seems a long way off. But as many have said before me, winter is coming. And that's something the Detroit police chief won't be forgetting anytime soon. Because it was August 31st when Chief James White, for whatever reason, gave himself and his department a deadline for solving the baffling murder of a local neurosurgeon named Devon Hoover. A murder that was then four months old. Hoover was shot in the head twice and then dragged face down into the attic of his own multi-million dollar mansion in a historic neighborhood. He was wrapped in a plastic sheet, and he was wearing nothing but a single sock. A person of interest emerged early on, but he was quickly ruled out, and since then there have been no apparent leads, no breaks, and certainly no more arrests, which is all the more distressing in light of the chief's promise to all of us back in August. You're not going to see him on camera just now, but you will be able to hear his pledge in the room, so take a listen. We just need a little bit more time. We're working in the prosecutor's office, and we have a to-do list. And uh, we're, we're prepared to have an announcement before snow hits the ground. Well, the snow certainly has started falling. 
2.4 inches of it so far this season in Detroit. So says the National Weather Service. Monday was almost a snow day at two inches. Yesterday, White said things have, quote, come up that have compromised his timeline. And he called his snowfall statement artful. Maybe he meant inartful. I don't know. But joining me now is Carol Gove. She's Devon Hoover's best friend, and this is her first national interview. Carol, thank you for being on with me tonight, and I'm so sorry about the loss of your friend. This has been just a, a mystifying um, you know, story to, to cover, and I'm sure it's been just excruciating to live through. What do you make of the promises that the, that the chief made and hasn't fallen, fallen, followed through on? Well, truly, it just... It just went to my heart and just pained my heart. I, we were counting on this, truly counting on and believed what he said. You know, I've called, uh, you know, family members, we've been, you know, pestering them. And it was always the same thing. Oh, we're tying up all the details by the time the snow flies. And then to hear him say that it was just an artful expression was just extraordinarily painful. It, it's just like... I, I, I don't know what to make of it. If you can't believe the police, who, who can you believe? So they had uh, the Detroit Board of Police Commissioners had a meeting yesterday. You were there. You actually were able to speak. Were they listening? And did you have a chance to, to let them know how you felt about maybe um, bringing in the FBI about now? Yes. I, I, I asked that um, they please do something now. I realize that because the way the investigation went, there are going to be problems with the prosecutor's office and what the prosecutor wants. And so I, I really feel that when you have these two entities that, you know, have different views of the thing, that it's time for an outside party, the FBI, to come in and deal with this. I mean, it's, you know, as far as I know, gone nowhere. I mean, there's been no communication you know, from the police, nothing. And the families had, I've had nothing, they've had nothing either. So it's Carol, just Carol, I very- didn't realize this until, until we reached out and talked to you, that you were actually at Devon's house um, the day after his murder, and you saw some very strange signs uh, for a place where such a violent crime had taken place. Can you describe what you saw? Uh, well, I wasn't. I knew I learned, you know, Monday morning that Devon was dead at nine o'clock. I went over to the house at ten because I wanted to meet his sisters, who all lived out of town, and not have them come to a strange, you know, place with this kind of news. So I was there. They they were calling back and forth. They were busy, you know. At the, doing at the um, coroners and the, that kind of thing. So I was there and people stopped by. But when I got there, you know, the, his body was discovered by the police on Sunday. I believe it was around 2.30 in the afternoon. So this is the next day, about 10 o'clock in the morning. And I was there. There was no one there. There was no um, crime scene tape around the house or around the yard or around anywhere. And there were no police. There was no one there. And so I was there, you know, and then the housekeeper came and we waited. And various people came by, you know, and, you know, offered condolences and help and whatnot. But um, finally, late in the afternoon, oh, maybe four o'clock, 
three policemen arrived and they walked right by us and went, took the duct tape, this little piece of duct tape on the iron gate that led into the um, backyard, into the driveway. And that was taped together. Um, they took that off, walked around the greenhouse and then left, started to leave. And I followed them and said, don't you want our names or don't you want to talk to us at all? Like, oh, so I gave my name and the housekeeper gave her name and phone number. And, um, I then, uh, you know, it was time to go home. I'd gotten a call from Devon's sister that they were in town. I told them to meet me at my apartment. So I left as soon as I got home. Uh, the detective called and wanted me to come down to the police station and speak with them, which I did. Um, but I really didn't have very much to say other than I think I was the last person to see Devon on Friday night. And the next morning he was supposed to go hmm. to Indiana. And that's about all so I could tell him. So as well that, that the door was unlocked uh, to, to the home. Um, Carol, we're going to continue well, to follow this. We have been dogged about watching this and as soon as we get more updates we'd love to have you back on we're so thankful that you did this and again my my sincere condolences for the loss that you've gone through thank you um thank you i just i just want this rock off my head i just want something some closure understand. I would too. And we'll continue to follow it. Carol Gove joining us again. uh, This was her first national interview, so we're very thankful. um, And we will continue to follow. Coming up next, we now know just how bad the attack on Derek Chauvin was in his federal prison last week. He was stabbed 22 times. And for many, that would be unsurvivable. And for Chauvin, it nearly was. We're also learning more about the fellow inmate who said he would have killed him had the guards not been there so quick to the rescue. Tonight, a whole stack of new details about that attack and the reasons behind it. And we'll ask the critical question, how did a dangerous inmate, a fellow inmate with a shank, even get close to a protected inmate like Chauvin? Could Chauvin's family sue? We're back right after this. Breaking news tonight, a whole pile of new details has just been unearthed in the stabbing last week of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer who was convicted of killing George Floyd. A fellow inmate of Chauvin's has now been charged with attempted murder. And we've been learning that the stabbing was a lot more serious than we first thought. Chauvin was actually nearly killed. We've learned that he was stabbed not once, not a few times, but 22 times. And the inmate that stabbed him used a shank. That's a prison term for an improvised knife. This all happened in the law library of the federal prison in Tucson, Arizona. The authorities say that the alleged attacker is 52-year-old John Tursak. Police say that uh, he picked the date, Black Friday, to honor the Black Lives Matter movement and the Mexican mafia. Um, He allegedly told guards that he would have killed Chauvin if they hadn't responded so quickly, but then later denied that. Chauvin survived the attack but was rushed to the hospital for treatment. He's been stabilized. As you'll probably remember, Chauvin is serving concurrent state and federal life sentences for George Floyd's death. I want to get Larry Levine in here. He knows a thing or two about life behind bars. He spent some time locked up in the federal system and now runs Wall Street prison consultants. Larry, you've actually been able to reach out to some of your sources and you've learned something from inside the institution. What did you hear? Yes. I knew the book that said, reached out to me. Turns out that, that 
the uh, John Tursak, he gets out of 30 minutes. Nobody goes and stabs somebody in the 30 minutes to the gate. If you take him here from that cafe house and such, Larry, I'm having, there's a problem with your audio. I don't, I cannot hear what you're saying because there's some kind of weird audio problem. So I want to get our producers to get you checked in so we can, it's very unclear what you're saying and I want to hear what this news is. So if I can just get our, um, our producers to, to check back in, uh, get, get Larry checked back in and out. So just real quickly, you, you should know this, that, um, Derek Chauvin is what is considered a PC. That's someone in protective custody. Because he's a high-profile inmate, uh, he's a target. And obviously, because of the news about Derek Chauvin and the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd's killing, um, as an inmate, he would be one of the number one targets. So the critical question becomes, how is someone like Derek Chauvin in a law library where another inmate can get access to him. Because a PC, like Alec Murdoch, for instance, even Casey Anthony when she was being held in jail, they are in their cells 23 hours a day and usually get an hour out for some kind of individual access to exercise or shower um, or even a moment in the law library. But it doesn't involve being around other inmates. Okay, I'm going to throw in a quick break right here because I want to hear what it was. I've heard that... Uh, Larry Levine was able to get a phone call from a burner phone inside that federal facility, and that source of his has told him something about this attack. So I'm so sorry to do this to you, because I'm really curious, too. I'm going to throw a quick break in here, get that audio fixed, and we'll be right back after this. Okay, the bugaboos of live TV. And of course, it would be Friday, right? You just about get through the whole week, and then... Um, maybe it's UAPs. That's a whole other story next week. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, in the Derek Chauvin story, uh, Larry Levine uh, got a phone call from a burner phone inside the uh, federal correctional facility in Tucson, Arizona, which is the same facility where Derek Chauvin was moved to back in August from his Minneapolis. Um, uh, well, listen, he was not only in Minneapolis in prison, but he was in solitary confinement in Minneapolis, and he went to a more medium security prison facility in the federal system in Arizona. Larry, can you hear me now? I know our audio was really stinky a minute ago, but are you back with me? Yeah, I hear you fine. Sorry about the green screen. Apparently, I have tech problems. No problem. I can hear you. I can't see you, but tell me about the phone call. Now I see you. Tell me what the phone call was that you got and what was said. So I got a phone call from my friend Smokey. He's an inmate inside over at Tucson. And here's the deal. This guy, John Tursak, he was a federal informant for the FBI like in 97, 98. And he cooperated in a huge Mexican mafia investigation. There was like 40 people. Now, he picked up a grip of time himself. The guy's been locked up for, what, 20, 22 years? Well, he's 30 months to the gate, as they say. He's 30 months to getting out. And he planned this. He's terrified of getting out because they say there's a contract out on him. So he wanted to stay inside the prison, and this is why he did this. He's a white guy. He's not affiliated with Black Lives Matter. He's not affiliated with the Mexican Mafia. They would like nothing more than to kill him. And this protective custody stuff, Tucson Medium, 
I mean, it's, he's not PC. He has run of the yard. There's different kinds of federal prison, although having like minimum, low, medium, and high, they have something called a dropout yard. And a dropout yard is where they put people that are like sort of protected, but they're not. The staff can't be everywhere. It's like R.J. Kelly, he's sitting in Butner, North Carolina as a sex offender. That's a dropout yard. So they're real careful about who they put in these places. You know, what's his name? Tursak, he really hadn't gotten any trouble while he was there. But he wanted to be high profile and he wanted to stay in prison, which I understand his reasoning as to why he did that. So can I ask you, um, if that's the case, he would have said something like, uh, here's my reason, I did this no, he's not for Black tell Lives Matter? Well, you, so you're saying that that's just a story with... that's being fed by the jail? By the well, Ashley, you know what? He didn't tell them, gee, I wanted to stay inside. He, okay, first of all, there's some weird, weird things going on. The BOP has something called, that's the Federal Bureau of Prisons, called SIS, Special Investigative Section. They have people that are called SIAs, Special Investigative Agents. They will investigate the crime, and then it takes about a week or so, and they'll refer it to the FBI. Well, the FBI picked this stuff up, I don't know, a couple days after it happened. So they're kind of fast-tracking things, and he's not going to be honest with them and say, well, gee, I just wanted to stay in prison. Not at all. This is not a secure facility. It's a medium security FCI. It's got two fences around it, roving patrols with cops ready to light you up. You try to go over the fence. Cellular living, but during the day, inmates are milling around the institution. They have what's called controlled movement. It's kind of like when you were back in high school, there was passing periods between classes. Well, they open the compound every hour and inmates can move freely between different locations, and then they close the compound. The reason why they do this, it's like a security protocol. In case there's an, an incident, a riot, a disturbance, whatever, they know who is where, and they can contain the problem. And it's interesting, Black, first of all, the BOP, they're shorthanded across the country. They are. After COVID, people left, people retired. And on Black Friday, because it's a holiday weekend, essentially, there was probably a really, really short shift of staff working. So they weren't prepared for this to happen. I mean, it is a medium security, but he picked this day. has nothing to do with blacks or Mexicans or Black Lives Matter. He knew he had a better chance of pulling this off with a short shift of staff on duty. So that was the next question I had for you, Larry. In order to shank someone 22 times in the law library at this facility, how fast would those guys have gotten to Derek Chauvin in order to, you know, save his life? Because the guy said, I was going to kill him. I, I, if they pulled me off any later, I would have killed him. How quickly would it have taken well, there might have, for them to, maybe to, there to, was to get some to him? Staff, maybe there was some COs, some staff milling around the building. It's possible. They're not sitting in the law library, <clears throat> excuse me, watching these inmates or anything. Usually the, the staff stands around talking and BSing with each other and smoking cigarettes. They're not really, really, they've got no care for the inmate's safety. 
So this guy gets stabbed, an inmate shouting something out. Staff hears it. They come running into the law library. Meanwhile, you got John here he putting probably something made out of a, a toothbrush. He probably melted it down. It couldn't be a really flimsy shank because he, he stuck him 22 times. It could have broke or whatever. So I would venture to say this is a, tooth, uh, a toothbrush this was done with. And when I got out of custody, I mean, I did some reality TV stuff, and I showed how easy it was with a cigarette lighter to essentially melt a toothbrush and make a knife out of it. So it's really easy to make a weapon inside. If you want to, you could put some padlocks and bars of soap in a sock and, boom, smash that over somebody's head. Take, uh, take a pair of boots, smash it over somebody's head. This guy wanted to get in quick, stab him, and be done with him. You know? He's not, remember, a, he's not I, a killer. You know, Larry, I if remember he hearing... he was doing, he would have got him in the chest, in the throat, in the ear, in the eye, and pierced his brain or something. That, that's interesting. I do remember an inmate once saying... Um, in order to kill someone, I just have to put more holes in him than they can patch up and stop the bleeding. Uh, and when I heard 22 times, that was what harkened back. I have to leave it there. But, Larry, will you just let us know if you get another phone call and any more inside information from that facility? Absolutely. That's pretty fascinating stuff. So appreciate Certainly, it. Larry Ashley. Levine uh, joining us tonight. Wall Street prison consultants. The guy knows everybody. I'm telling you, the guy knows everybody. Coming up next. The stuff that police and true crime junkies love to hear. A name finally put to an anonymous victim. One fewer John Doe's in the world. And what's better, this victim's name was a mystery for almost 50 years and is connected to one of the sickest and most violent serial killers in our history. Here's a hint. Get out your scorecards. You'll need to update them. Full details next. Here is a great way to end the show with a victory for law enforcement, some hard-won answers for a victim's family, and a major update if you're keeping score of serial killers. A John Doe murder victim from the 1970s has just been identified. The body of this teenage boy was found near Long Beach, California, way back in 1974. That's 49 years ago. His name was a mystery until some 21st century DNA detective work confirmed that he's Michael Ray Schlicht from Cedar Rapids, Idaho, Iowa. And there's more. Police are convinced that Michael was an early victim of the notorious scorecard killer, a man named Randy Kraft, a serial murderer who today is sitting on California's death row. Police say that Kraft killed dozens of men and boys in the 70s and the early 80s. He was called the scorecard killer because he kept a long and coded list of many of his victims. As for Michael Ray Schlicht, he would now be 66 years old if he'd lived, but instead he died at 17. His family says that they're going to put up a headstone in his memory. All right, so uh, coming up on Monday, we're going to have a whole lot more on what we find out about the Derek Chauvin attempted murder from inside that federal facility in Tucson, Arizona. I'm so into prison stuff. I don't know about you, but that culture, that's just whack. And speaking of culture inside jails, behind bars. You know Nima Momeni, the guy who's like uh, going to stand trial for the murder of the cash app exec? Look at the picture. This is him in his solitary cell in San Bruno, California, just south of San Francisco. Just under the News Nation bug there are a couple of books on his desk. And guess what? He's reading about Napoleon and psychology. 
So we're going to go inside and find out a whole bunch more about